0: So I'm so proud of you, everybody here at the 11 o'clock service and in Sanctuary 2. It's gorgeous outside, and you fought the good fight, and you came to church, all right? The, your, the rewards will be yours, all right? So good job. All right, Dale, Romans chapter 12, like Pastor Jeff just mentioned, we're in uh, verse 3 to 8 uh, this morning. And I, this is what I want to do. I just want to read it uh, to you and then pray. It's short enough for us to be able to read in its entirety, so let me read it to you. Starting in verse 8, or excuse me, verse 3, if you want to follow along. He says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, verse 4, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts, verse 6, that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching. Verse 8, the one who exhorts in his exhortation the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Father, we come to you this morning, and we want to know you. We want to obey you. We want to be conformed into the image of Christ. And as we, Father, look at this little passage in front of us, and as we're trying to answer the question, as we looked at last week, what does it mean to be a living sacrifice? And What does it mean that it's my body for God's glory? We pray, Lord, that you would help us in that understanding as we continue in this section of scripture. And Lord, this morning in these few verses, help us, Lord, with that first really big hurdle of a proper self-perspective and attitude, Lord. Let us not be Um, overcome with thoughts of the self but sober sober like it says there in your word lord sober in our attitude about the self not drunk with an attitude of the self but sober lord we pray for that and we also pray lord that you help us to really have a better vision for what the body of christ is and that we are a body and that there are many individual members with different functions but also lord that we need each other so help us lord with that vision and perspective and then As we look at some of the gifts that Paul writes down and mentions, help us to understand them. But Lord, help us to receive the exhortation that he gives attached to them that we would use the gifts that you've given to us. Lord, help us to embrace the role that you've given to us and the things that you want to do, Lord, through our lives. So in all of this, God, we're just seeing a spirit of Jesus, a spirit of Christ. And so we pray, Lord, that the spirit of Christ would be within us, operating within us, helping us, Lord, to get out of the self and to see the church, the body of Christ, and to use our gifts, Lord, effectively. Help me, Lord, right now as a teacher of your word to make things clear, understandable, Lord, that we could then take the truth of your word and we could just run in it and celebrate it and partake of everything that you have for us in this life. We thank you, Lord, and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, When John wrote his gospel account, his record, he included some details that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Luke had not recorded. And one of them comes on the last night of Jesus' life before he goes to the cross. And there, on that night, you know about the Passover meal and the taking of the communion and everything. But there's this moment in John 13 where it says that Jesus knew that he'd come from the Father and that he was going to go back to the Father. In other words... He knew of his position. He knew, I'm the son of God, God the son. He knew that. And he knew of his future glorification. And knowing that, with that knowledge firmly in his mind, it says then that he took a towel and he tied it around his waist and he took off his outer garment and he took a basin of water and he began to go through the room and he began to wash the feet of his disciples. It was the job of the servant in the house to do that and if you were having someone to your home in that culture you would usually offer that you would offer to wash the feet of the people coming into your home apparently nobody had done that that night and so jesus took that responsibility on himself he took the lowest position the position of the servant and he began to wash their feet practically speaking this was a needed necessary good kind of thing they lived in a culture wearing sandals dirt roads animals everywhere washing feet would be great when they came, when Jesus came to Peter, Peter objected. It's kind of a little like parentheses in the story. Peter objected. I, I'm always curious. How many guys did Jesus wash the feet of the uh How many feet did Jesus wash before he got to Peter? And then Peter objected because this kind of makes Peter look really good, right? Like these first seven they let you do it but not me. I do there's no way. I'm way too humble, you know, for that kind of thing. And and so Peter says that to Jesus and Jesus says, "Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me." And then Peter makes it really awkward cuz then he's like, "Well then, Lord, everything. Wash it all," you know. And it's like, "Bah, oh, that's awkward. That's not necessary, Peter." That's what Jesus said. That's not necessary. You know, it's just your feet that are dirty, and it was kind of a a symbol of our own justification and sanctification. We are cleansed by the Lord positionally. But then as we walk through the dirt of this life, he continues to wash our feet and to cleanse us, grow us, you know, things like that. But then when he was finished and he was done washing everybody's feet, Jesus said to them, do you know what I've done to you? He said, if I, your Lord and master, that's who he was to them. He says, that's a right estimation. I'm the Lord. I'm your master. If I, your Lord and your master, have done this to you, so you also ought to wash each other's feet. And for I think what Jesus was communicating there was the importance amongst God's people of really using our gifts, our, times, our, our, our time, our talents to care for each other to minister to each other. He wasn't just giving like this really strict thing of, you need to wash each other's feet. That's it. You know, I know some churches like to do that, like have little foot washing ceremonies. But like, honestly, I'll take care of that myself. I'll wash my feet. You don't need to wash my feet. But there are spiritual needs that we have. There are other things that we need from each other. And I think that's what Jesus was communicating. Take that low position and serve. The reason I'm saying all that about the Lord is because Romans 12 13, 14, and 15, if you really want to know what's described there, it's the life of Jesus. That's the life that's described there. When Paul talks about submitting to governing authorities, that came from Jesus' teaching. When he talks about blessing those who curse you, taking care of your enemies, that came from the teaching of Jesus. And here, when he talks about taking the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to you, And using them for the betterment of others, that came first from Jesus. And when he talks about thinking properly and soberly about yourself, having a proper view of the self and humbling yourself, that came from Jesus. He knew who he was, yet he lowered himself to become uh, the servant of all. And so really what we're studying here, I know last week we asked the question, what does it mean? If, if my mission statement, Romans 12, 1 and 2, if my mission statement there is my body for God's glory, and if you missed that, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that, but that's what he says. We're to give ourselves, our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable uh, to God. And the question then is, what does that mean? What does it look like to be a living sacrifice? And I think we even discussed that this last week in our life groups. What, is it, what does it mean to be a living sacrifice? And there are different answers to that question, but actually that's the question Paul's going to answer all the way through chapter 15. This is what it looks like to be a living sacrifice. So we're going to actually study it, and it all comes from the life of Jesus. So really, the life of a living sacrifice is the life of Christ, who was the best living sacrifice that ever lived. Amen. He laid down his life for us on the cross. So really, this is just the spirit of Christ, the gospel message invading our hearts and making us like this. All right. So this is just a total reaction to the gospel as it's already been preached uh, to us. So three things we're going to look at today. Uh, We're going to learn we need to think accurately about the self. Number two, we're going to learn that we have to know how the body of Christ works, at least in general. And number three, that we need to use our gifts. So let's take the first one, number one, to think accurately about ourselves. It's in verse three. This is how Paul said it there in verse three. He said, For by the grace given to me, I know we read this, but let me read it again. By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So the big thing that Paul's holding out here is that we have to think accurately about ourselves. Why is this the first thing that Paul holds out? Why is it, you know, right after he gives the mission statement, our bodies for God's glory, why is it right away that the first thing that he really gets after is the way that we think about ourselves? I think part of the reason that Paul is doing this is because This, if you don't get this, will keep you from the rest of Romans 12, 13, 14, and 15. A high view of the self will totally keep you out of serving other people. A high view of the self will keep you from a proper submission to the governing authorities. A high view of the self will keep you from considering the weaknesses in other believers and abstaining from liberties that are yours in Christ for the sake of their faith and their growth. A high view of the self will keep you from all that kind of stuff. And so Paul just goes right after it. Don't let anyone among you think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. In other words, to be trapped in this place means that you cannot go on. Have you ever played the game Monopoly? It's, it says a lot about my personality that I really like Monopoly, you know. There's people, I found that there's people that really like it and there's people that really hate it. It's like there's two kinds of people in this world. I'm a Monopoly lover. I like Monopoly and all that. But there's, in Monopoly, there's this little corner on the board. It's, the, it's jail, right and when you're playing you can kind of like pass through it there's a little just visiting kind of section like i didn't do anything i didn't get a card or whatever but you can you can also get sent to jail you land on a little corner that says go to jail or you pull something out of the community chest or chance i can, can't remember which one but they'll send you to jail or if you roll doubles three times in a row on the same turn, also, you go to jail. So maybe there's another way that I can't think of, but I like to know the rules of Monopoly, okay? So anyway, I'm a lot of fun to play with. But, uh, you know, the thing is, when you're there and you're in jail, everybody else, they keep rolling they keep moving, they keep progressing in the game, but not you, you stay there until you pay your way out, until you roll doubles or whatever to get out of jail, you stay there, you're stuck in that place where, well, everyone else is advancing. And I think that's why Paul is holding out this concept first. He's saying, look, self-thought, too high of an esteem or a view of self will keep you from everything else. You will not advance if your self-perspective is improper." He uses the word sober as a proper uh, perspective. So the opposite would be drunkenness or, uh, you know, your high thinking about yourself in an inordinate uh, kind of way. Of course, Jesus was a servant. He told us to serve. And so to be effective, we must also serve like Jesus served. And that requires a sober view of the self. But this is really hard for us, isn't it? Us telling the nine o'clock service. That this morning during that service, you know, as we started like the service and everything, we're singing and stuff. And it took me like a song and a half to kind of get in the groove. The first song and a half, I was like just thinking about all these other things, you know, things I need to do, stuff like that. But honestly, I'm kind of embarrassed to say this, but one of the things that I was thinking about was uh, the last time I wore this white shirt. I think at church was the first time I'd worn it at church, and like all these people, like lots of old ladies and stuff, were saying like, "I oh, love that shirt. That's such a nice shirt." And it was like, and I was like, oh man!" Like everybody made such a big deal about like, "Whoa, that's really white," you know? Like, uh, so I guess maybe some were compliments, some were like not compliments or whatever. But I just was like, for about a song, I was like thinking about it. My white shirt. Should I worn my white shirt? Like I was just thinking about it. It took me a little while to just stop thinking. About myself is what I'm saying. It's so easy for us to go in that direction. I started worshiping God, thinking about the Lord, praising him. Pretty soon, by the end of our time of worship at 9 o'clock, there was something that God dropped into my heart. I think it was a thought that I needed to have really big that he was encouraging me with. Nate, have faith. Walk with me. But it was, he couldn't get that until I put my attention where it needed to be. So a lot of times, though, we're consumed with thoughts of the self. And so Jesus, or excuse me, Paul here is saying, look, this is a really big part of it. You have to think with sober judgment. Now, that does kind of lead us to a question like, well, what does that mean, though? Like, what does that look like? A lot of Christians have, I think, interpreted this kind of concept, servant of all, sober judgment about the self in a wrong kind of way. You know, this almost like false humility where you're you're still thinking about yourself all the time, but it's just like, woe is me. I'm not a, you know, I'm nothing special. You know, we, like you go to life group and you're like, I'm, I'm, thank you so much for having me to, to this life group. I know I'm ruining it, you know, kind of thing or whatever, where it's just like, whoa, gosh, you know, you're still doing the think about yourself thing, but just like in a totally different kind of way. Paul, I think, gives us a great example of what this looks like actually in verse 3. Notice what he said. He said, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you. And then he just basically gives us, after he says that, he gives us like a million exhortations. In other words, he stands up boldly, courageously, aggressively almost, and just says, look, this is who I am. God gave me a grace. That's him referring to his apostleship. He's saying, God made me into an apostle. And so, I'm going to stand up. I've never even been to the church in Rome, Paul is saying. I've not been there. I've not seen you face to face. But I'm over here in Corinth. And I'm going to write you this letter. And I'm going to exhort you like crazy. Because I know who God has made me to be. He has given me the calling, he's saying, of being an apostle. And I think with that, it helps us understand what it's supposed to look like for us, not to think too highly of the self, but to have a sober judgment. You're still supposed to run in the thing that God has made you to be. This is not some kind of false humility where you just never obey the Lord and you never are used by God. No, you actually go for it. Paul said it in this way in Philippians 3, verse 13. He said, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I like to say it like this. Paul made it his mission to obtain the thing that Jesus had obtained him for. That was his passion. He wanted to get what Christ had gotten him for. That's all he wanted in his life. And he forgot the things that were behind, and he pressed forward. Some of you here this morning, you need to practice that very same thing. You need to forget the things that are behind. You need to aggressively pursue that for which Christ has made you for. He redeemed you. He bought you. He purchased you. He forgave you. He cleansed you. And he's done that so that he can, at least in part, here on this earth, use your life. He has many things that he wants to do through you. I know that he wants to use your life. You say, how do you know that? Well, the reason I know that is because you're still here. You're still here. If he was done with you, if he didn't have a purpose for you, you'd be here no more. He'd just take you home to be with him. But you're still here. He still has a purpose in your life. And some of you, you need to forget not the failures of the past, but you need to forget the successes of the past. You need to forget the victories of the past. They're tying you up. Well, I was fruitful in this ministry, or I did that. Or there was a season where I got to be used this way by the Lord. And you're remembering that and maybe clinging to that or maybe even using it as an excuse for not being used by the Lord in the here and now. But he's got a plan for you still today. And he wants to use your life in great and powerful ways. So uh, Paul is saying here, look, I'm going to use the gifts that God has given to me. He's a great example of this, even as he tells us not to be drunk with self-thought. All right, let's move forward in the text. In verse 4 and 5. Paul then goes on to say, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, verse 5, and individually we are members of one another. All right, so this is uh, an illustration that Paul uses a few different times in the New Testament for the church. For the body of Christ. The church is described with a, a lot of different illustrations, like the uh, family, uh, we're on a mission, there's like military phrases that are used as an illustration of the church, but one of them is a human body. And he calls us here, one body in uh, Christ Jesus. And uh, if you want to find a place where Paul spoke a lot about this and kind of unpack this, you'd read 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He talked about some gifts of the Spirit there, but then he talked a lot about the body and the way that the body, the human body, uh, works. And the emphasis that Paul seems to make here is in verse 4. He says, the members do not all have the same function. That's one thing that we need to learn about the body of Christ. If we're also to, to know how the body of Christ works, we have to understand that not every part of the body has the same function. You understand that with your physical body. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 12. He said, look, you know, if the body were entirely an eye, how would that work? Or if the body was entirely an ear, how would that work? I mean, like that'd be horrible. I'm imagining in my mind like chocolate cake. And if my body was entirely an eye and could just see the chocolate cake and I'm just there, I'm like, that looks so good. I would love to eat that, but I had no hands, no mouth, no ability to consume it. That's a bummer. It's just obviously, it's not a body if it's all one part. And this is important for us to remember because as individual members in the body of Christ, we see things a certain way. We have specific gifts and callings and talents that God has designed us for. And one of the mistakes that we we can often make, people will write books after they figure out themselves in the body of Christ, Assuming that the whole church should look just like them. What Paul is explaining is that's not the case. There's different members inside the body of Christ, different parts of the body. He goes on also in verse five to say that we are one body in Christ and we are individually members of uh, one another, one body in Christ. So here Paul is highlighting the oneness of the church. We're different, but we complement each other But we're also different, yet at the same time, we are simply one body. You know, this is helpful to us for a lot of different reasons. But one is, like earlier we were thinking uh, in our service about missions throughout the world. And when you're doing that, you're thinking about the universal church, the church throughout the world. And as you're thinking about the church throughout the world, it's helpful to understand that Jesus, who is the head of the body of Christ, we're connected to him, he sees the church as just one church, one group. That's what he sees. And so he sees churches that use different languages than us. He sees churches that are meeting in different time zones than us and different cultures than us. And he sees us along with them and he says that's that's one, that's one body. That's That's helpful to us, I think, uh, because it helps us consider just like local churches and the way that even though I, I believe very strongly, and I think I've demonstrated that with my life, that it's very important for us to give ourselves to a specific local congregation, it's also good to see that Jesus sees the whole body of Christ, okay? So that, I think that's a, that's a helpful clarification for us. We are one in that kind of way. But also, it's helpful for like a local church to just consider, look, we're just one, body and there are a lot of different parts of this body you know they have a lot of different functions within this body and we're not all supposed to look the same walk the same talk the same be the same have the same passions the same interests no we're different from each other it's like we know that we'd never think that we're all supposed to be the same but it's good for us to remember afresh we're complementary we we uh, balance each other out we're used together in the same body i've told you guys before you guys know this i li- I like running, I like getting out on the trails and all that, and you know when you 're like you're trying to hammer up a big mountain or something like that, your whole body is totally involved you know your mind 's involved uh, in a really big way you know it 's not actually you know a muscle that 's being used to propel you up the mountain, but uh, your mind is a really big part of it, you know when you have when your lungs start saying like we 're going to die right now it 's really important for like a cooler head to prevail in that moment, you know for your mind to say like no you 're going to live you 've done this before you 'll survive, you can make it." Uh, and, but the whole body's involved, you know, the the eyes are involved, you're looking, and you're noticing, like, where am I going, where am I stepping, I don't want to trip, I don't want to fall, how much further do I have to go, you're calculating that kind of thing, your mouth is involved, bringing in the oxygen, and and all of that, your lungs are expanding, and, you know, the heart's involved, the, the arms are pumping, the legs, obviously, are involved, the feet involved, everything's involved in getting you up Uh, the mountain. And I think that kind of concept should be helpful to us because here's the deal. When a church, a local congregation, when the individual members of the body are doing their part, then that church gets places is what I'm trying to say. That's important for us to understand and to embrace. And I'm thankful for, you know, just like looking in, in this local congregation and church I'm really thankful for the way that the pastoral leadership, the elders of the church, have decided to design uh, this church and to organize this church. Every church has to pick a way to organize. And I'm thankful for the way that this church is organized because the only way that we'll make it, the only way that we'll move forward, the only way that we'll make more disciples, and the only way that we'll bear fruit is when the members of the body are working together. Because, you know, I'm sure you've all seen churches or seen ministries where it's like on a couple people, and it's their gifts that are driving the whole thing forward. But in a congregation like this, with the way we have the life groups designed and the need for leaders to care for the individual members and make disciples, it isn't being set upon just a couple of people to drive everything forward. It's the whole church. And the more people take the ministry seriously and drive things forward and understand their role and their part, the more that we'll be able to do uh, in this community and in this world. So I'm very thankful for that. But it's a concept that Paul wants us really to understand. We are one body, many different body parts, all working together uh, for the purpose of making uh, disciples. Okay, let's look at our final little section in verse uh, 6 to 8. Here's where, so we've seen two things. We have to have a proper view of the self and we have to know how the body of Christ works. But let's look at this final thing, verse six. We have to also use our gifts. He says, verse six, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. So what Paul's gonna do here is he's gonna talk about the spiritual gifts. Uh, he's really not trying to give here in Romans twelve an exhaustive list. He's only going to mention seven, and so we'll look at each of these seven gifts here today. Um, if you want to look at all of the gifts of the Spirit throughout the New Testament, the other places you would go, if you're taking notes, is you would go to 1 Corinthians chapter twelve and fourteen. You would also go to I think Ephesians four verse eleven and twelve. And then I think also there's a gift mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'll leave you to find that. But so there are more gifts than just these seven that Paul is going to mention here. His emphasis here isn't to give an exhaustive list, but he says use the gifts that you have. So his point is to say be exhausted in using the gifts. So not an exhaustive list, but be exhausted in the gifts that you have. So you like what I did there? That was nice. Okay, not an exhaustive list, but be exhausted. I just kind of nerded out on that this week. I thought, that's nice, I'm gonna say that. Okay, but so that's what Paul's trying to communicate. His thing is use the gifts that God has given to you. It says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11, that the Holy Spirit distributes the gifts individually as he wills. You've heard studies about the will of God, the will of Christ, Have you thought about the will of the Holy Spirit? He has a a will. And he looks at us as individual believers. He is, according to Ephesians 1 and 2 Corinthians 1, the seal that's upon us. When you become a believer, the Holy Spirit begins to live inside of you. But he also has gifts that he wants to give to us as his people. And when you have a gift from the Lord, it's not yours It's a gift that's been given to you. It didn't originate with you, in other words. It came from God. And you're to use that gift for the Lord. That's what he says there. Let us use these gifts. Jesus told a parable in Matthew 25. He talked about a landowner who went away on a distant journey. And before he left, he gave three servants measurements of money called talents. Not talents like we think of them, but measurements of money. He said to one, he gave five talents, to another two talents, and to another one talent. And then one with five and the one with two, they went and invested and dealt in business, and they doubled the master's money. And when he returned, they said, you gave me five, here's ten. You gave me two, here's four. And And he said to them, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. But the third, who had one talent, he says to him, I knew that you were a severe and austere master, so I took the talent that you gave me, I wrapped it in a handkerchief, and I buried it in the ground, and when I heard that you were coming, I went and dug it up, and here it is. Here's the talent that you gave to me, and the master said, you should have at least taken it, put it in a bank, and at least it would have yielded its interest, and the master referred to that servant as a wicked and slothful servant. Obviously, as we look at that parable, we understand Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. He left, and he will return. And obviously for us, we would say there's a couple of guys in that story that we want to be like, and there's one that we really don't want to be like. We don't want to be the handkerchief guy. We don't want to take the gifts that God gave to us and bury them. Not use them. No, we want to use the gifts that God has given to us. We want to bear fruit unto God's kingdom so that we can hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. So that's the emphasis that Paul makes here. Use the gifts that God has given to you. Get off the bench, get into the game, and do the things that the Lord has designed you for. So let's look at these seven gifts together, and I'll just make a couple comments about each one of them. I don't have time to give like a really big in-depth study on each one of these. I have done that before on Wednesday nights in a little series we called Spirit-Fueled Life, so if you want to listen to that online, you can. But in verse 6, he says, if prophecy, then in proportion to our faith. So with each one of these gifts Paul's going to mention, he's got a little attached exhortation. So the person with the gift of prophecy, then they need to do it in proportion to their faith. So some people whose faith is still small, then they will... Prophesy accordingly, and some people with bigger faith they'll say bigger things, you know, things like that. So the first one, right off the bat, the gift of uh, prophecy. Now I really don't think it's a good idea for Christians to walk around referring to themselves to other Christians as a prophet. That's just kind of a. It's usually like a no-no in Christian circles and conversations. If you want to make like fellowship really awkward. Then say that, you know, just like, well, I'm a prophet. You know, that just makes everybody like, well, okay, I don't know. In the New Testament, it is clear there is an office of the prophet. In the book of Acts, uh, the prophets in the early church would often, they would predict. They had predictive elements to their words. Like, for instance, there's a prophecy that went around the early church in the book of Acts that there, a prediction that there would be a famine or some kind of difficulty that happened to the church in Jerusalem, a coming hardship for that church, and so in preparation for that, the churches in uh, throughout Asia they, uh, they would take Asia Minor, they would take uh, f- financial gifts and bring them to the church in Jerusalem to prepare for that time of coming difficulty. So it was like a beautiful kind of thing, and there were a couple guys in the Book of Acts that operated as prophets to the early church. But there's a difference between the office of a prophet and the gift of prophecy. Let me read to you what Paul describes the gift of prophecy as from 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3. Write that down if you're taking notes. 1 Corinthians 14, 3. He said, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation or comfort. So it's this authoritative word that exhorts someone, that upbuilds someone, that encourages someone, or that brings comfort into someone's life. So it isn't this thing where it's uh, the gift of prophecy, isn't this thing where like as you're talking to someone, you're all, you like have to close your eyes and you're like, well, hold on a second, I'm getting something, like you don't have to do, you know, that kind of thing. That's not the way this works. It's just a really authoritative word at a really timely moment in a person's life. I remember years ago, when all my kids were really little. I was going through this little season where I was fearful. Every parent's gone through like fear for their kids, but specifically what I was going through was fear for my children because they're growing up in a pastor's home. I know a lot of pastor's kids. I am a pastor's kid. A lot of us don't turn out that great. And so I was worried about that. I was just kind of thinking about the life that they were going to be living, a lot of people watching them, a lot of people weighing in on their lives and their decisions, living in that kind of observed atmosphere, the fishbowl, as they say. And I was just kind of worried about that. And I thought, you know, and, I, and so one day I was opening up and I was sharing with an older believer, an older man. I was talking to him about this. And I was just kind of sharing these, like, worries, these fears that I was having. And as I was sharing them, this moment came in our conversation where he just looked at me with so much authority, and he just said, you need to stop thinking like that. That is not the destiny of your children. He said, they will make their own decisions, and they will walk with the Lord or they will not, but it is not their destiny to not walk with the Lord. You will be a good father, you will raise them well, and you will give them no excuse to walk away from Christ. And I mean, he just like, as he was speaking that, it was just like, it was just the word of the Lord to me in that moment to just correct a line of thinking that I, sh- that I think the enemy wanted me to, to have in my mind and in my heart. So the, the gift or the word of prophecy is, is what Paul mentions there. So some of you, you'll have that gift. Paul also said in 1 Corinthians 14 verse uh, 1, listen to this. He said, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts especially that you may prophesy, right? So this was, it's like what he's saying is, this is a really handy gift to have when you get together in your life group. Because when somebody's going through something and they say, you know, something like I just mentioned, they say something like that, it's really great when somebody is able to speak into their lives and to really encourage them in a powerful kind of way. Paul said, you know, desire the gifts, but uh, really of all of them, that's a great one. Then in verse 7, let's look at another one, our second gift. He says, if service in our serving. If service in our serving. Now, the interesting thing about some of these gifts is that, you know, they are things that, like, every Christian is supposed to serve. You know, we're going to see the gift of generosity in a moment or the gift, gift of giving in a moment. Every Christian, we want to learn the discipline of giving and having an open hand. That's part of the Christian life. But some people just have a knack, a gift. That they've gotten from God. And here you have a person who they just have a specific group of people, perhaps, uh, you know, a uh, certain ethnicity or people group or generation or age or uh, gender that as they look at them, they say, man, this, man, I love these people. This is their service unto God. And they just have a strong feeling about it. That's, that's I think, what he's saying about the gift of service. It's to help people perhaps in a particular group. I remember years ago, a friend of mine, he actually performed the wedding for Christina and I. His name's Manny. He's a pastor. He pastors a church out in Fresno now, but he had been our youth pastor here in the church for a while. And that's where I really got to get to know him and watch him and serve alongside him a little bit. But he had a lot of great gifts, but he had this ministry where he had a a real concern and passion for the over sexualization of teenagers, and he just had this ability to talk to teenagers about sex that was just so beautiful because like for so many of us, like to start like talking about that kind of subject especially with teenagers, you know, it's like we get all uncomfortable and awkward and we're feeling weird and looking down and stuff like that. But he wasn't like that. And like it was light and easy and he was just effective in it. And I watched him as he had that service or that ministry, I watched him influence thousands of young people to a healthier life and to godliness, and to consecration. I watched him turn a lot of people to that because of that service that God had given to him. We couldn't all be like that. We couldn't all have that ministry. And that's one of the mistakes that people who have a specific burden in their hearts, one of the mistakes that we make is to think everyone ought to have this burden. And not everyone can. There's a lot of things Jesus is trying to do here on this earth, and so we have to sort of diversify, and the Holy Spirit has done that. All right, So that's the gift, I think, of service. Notice also, verse 7, the one who teaches in his teaching. So there is a gift of teaching. Some people are called by the Holy Spirit, called by God to be teachers of God's Word. It could mean this, the kind of thing I'm doing right now, but the gift of teaching needs to go way beyond A main pulpit in a church or something like that into ministries discipleship settings personally one-on-one i'll never forget when i was 18 and first started walking with the lord god put this man into my life his name was darren and i thought darren was like really old i think he was like 26 or something but, you know, when you're 18, 26, it's just like ancient, you know. He's just like, oh, man, you know, this guy, he has, wi- he has wisdom, you know, kind of thing. But, you know, he wasn't like so far down the line in life where, you know, he was married with kids and all that kind of stuff. He was just, you know, like far enough out there to where I, I felt like I could see myself a little bit. And Darren taught me. He had a gift of teaching. He taught me. He would sit with me. I would ask him questions. He taught me a lot about what it looks like to be a man, to be a man of God. I don't even know if he knew that he was teaching me, but it was just a gift that God had put in his life. And so what the teacher has to do, he says, is in his teaching. He's got to go for it in his teaching. He must not just study, but he must also teach. He must uh, not just love the Bible, but he must love people and take the opportunities that God puts in front of him. Now verse eight, there's a gift that we really love to enjoy. He says, the one who exhorts in his exhortation. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. This is a really cool gift because it's actually the same Greek word that's used to describe the help of the Holy Spirit. It means to call someone alongside of you, to plead for them, or with them earnestly, to invite them, to encourage them, to appeal to them, to beg them. If prophecy is like a moment of that edification, exhortation, or comfort, the person with the gift of exhortation, this is always just bleeding out of their lives. This is just who they are. This is just how they operate. My wife is like this with me. She so often we'll give those words of exhortation and comfort and just like, keep going. That, that you, thing you just did, keep doing that. That was so good. And that gift of exhortation goes a long way in propelling you in your life and in the things God has called you to. My brother-in-law, one of my best friends, he also has this gift. It's just like you're just around him and you just feel exhorted all the time, just encouraged all the time. Like, yes, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep doing it. I'm going to keep moving. There's just something so positive about a person like this. If you've ever been in the presence of a person with a gift of exhortation, you've probably walked away saying to yourself, I wish I could be like that. I wish I had that kind of impact on a person's life. It's a beautiful gift. It says in Hebrews 10 verse 24 that we ought to consider how to stir up One another to love and good works. And the person with the gift of exhortation, they do, they operate in that way. Then in verse eight, he says this the one who contributes in generosity. So there are some people that have a gift of giving, a gift of contribution. All right, now for someone like this, they're just like, I'm sure there are moments in their lives where they wrestle with it a little bit and it's like, ah, do I really wanna do that? Do I really wanna give? But for the most part, they just really enjoy it, all right? So, uh, you know, for most of us, most of us are experienced with generosity as like, I, I know I need to, I know that I should, and so technically I want to, but this is hard. This is painful. And as the money is leaving your hand, it's like, go, oh, you know, kind of thing. And it's, it's, it's like difficult. But there are those in the body of Christ who have a real gift for it, a, a real gift gift of giving or generosity. And that gift is powerful in the church. It goes way beyond just money. In the New Testament, it includes possessions, goods, clothing, spiritual gifts, the gospel, taking care of the financial needs of others, land being donated, houses being uh, lent for the kingdom of God. So it goes way beyond just the financial realm. But yeah, uh, he says, the one who contributes in generosity. I remember when I first started pastoring the church here, I had, before being the lead pastor, uh, I had done a lot of different things, and, you know, I'd worked here at the church. This was my job. I give, was giving myself, you know, full time to to the work here. And so we have these little like mailboxes in the main office where everybody has like their name printed out, you know, people that, you know, work here, serve here. So we have our names printed out and there would be like a couple times a month, there would be a little envelope in my little mailbox and it had my paycheck. And so I would go and I would get that and I would, you know, okay, that's cool. Well, I remember the first time that after I become the pastor of the church, I remember the first time as the lead pastor walking up to that mailbox with those envelopes in there for the first time ever I saw all the envelopes I saw everybody's box and to be honest with you it terrified me and it's been actually a, a big part of just kind of my own like prayer life like God I, you know, I love these people you love these people continue to provide for them you know things like that and uh, I remember those first couple of years in leadership here I had to make some decisions and, you know, whenever you make decisions or changes or whatever, there's always some people that are like, yeah, high five, and then there's other people not as much. And, um, and so the church got smaller, quite a bit smaller, as a result of some of the decisions that I just knew, we knew pastorally we had to make. But, you know, time was just going on. The church was changing, shifting. And I remember this one summer just looking out and just wondering, like God, what are you? What are you doing here? What's happening? What's happening? Is there a brighter day? Is there, you know, these prophecies that I've heard, this encouragement I've received from you, these things that I th- think that you want to do in us as a church and through my life? Is that really true? What am I? Am I doing something wrong? You know. And uh, and I remember this one day, I was actually getting a cell phone. And I was at, so I was at the cell phone store, and I got a phone call, and it was from Pastor Jeff. And he said, hey, man, are you sitting down? And when your assistant pastor calls you and says, are you sitting down, it's usually bad. <laughs> you know? And at that stage, I thought, this is probably really bad. So I sat down, and he shared with me. And I, don't, I purposefully don't know who gives what in this church. Um, it's a conscious decision that I made. But anyways... He shared with me, he said, somebody made, and he shared with me this really big investment, donation that someone had given to the church. And it didn't affect me at all financially in that moment or anything like that. But it was like the Holy Spirit was just telling me, I'm working here. There is something powerful that I'm doing. Just stay the course, keep moving. Keep doing the things that I've laid on your heart to do. Just keep going. And it was just like that gift that someone had of generosity, it so encouraged my heart. Obviously met practical needs, but it also was a great encouragement for the body of Christ and really lifted me up during that season. It was very important for me in that moment in my life. So uh, it's a beautiful gift when someone's able to operate in it. And then he says, finally, I know this is kind of going long, so the last two gifts... The one who leads with zeal. And so the gift of leadership, if you have that, you need zeal in it because it's easy to get tired in uh, the role of leadership. So you got to have that zeal. And then finally, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. There is a gift of acts of mercy where you are able to just lay down your life and uh, not just say mercy, but show mercy. I'll never forget uh, Michelle, Pastor uh, Mike's wife, Michelle Casey, she's so gifted, and there was a time where she worked here at the church, and she doesn't anymore because the ministry that her and Mike were doing with on Monday nights with regeneration and in their home, the bridge uh, house and everything, it was just exploding, uh, so she could no longer actually serve here in that capacity. She had to just give herself completely to uh, that ministry. But I remember there was a time where I had an office right next to hers, and the phone calls that would come in, it was just all day long, all day long. And like some of the stuff, like one phone call that would come in, if I had to deal with it, it would just like explode my brain to like have to, well, I don't, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do with that. You know, like let's turn to Colossians. I'll give you a Bible study. Like I don't, I wouldn't have known what to do, but she just had this like ability with disaster after disaster, after disaster, to with a smile on her face, like he says here, with cheerfulness, just continue to do that kind of work. And some people just have that gift. They're able to step into a disaster and with a smile on their face, just do the work that God has designed them to do. And so the showing of mercy to God's people is a powerful Uh, gift. And so a lot of these gifts are, you know, really beautiful, helpful, and part of uh, the body of Christ. We want to operate in them completely. Remember I told you at the beginning of this about Jesus, how he washed the feet? He said, you know, you guys need to wash each other's feet. That's what you need to do. And then this is what he said in John 13, verse 17. He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. It's one thing to know your gifts. But they're actually not a blessing to just know them. They're a blessing to use. They're a blessing to use. That's why Paul says, the gifts that have been given, use them. Use them. So, Lord, we thank you so much that you have designed this life. It's a real paradox to us. It's a paradox to us because it feels like we should preserve and protect our lives and that we'll be happy as a result. But you've made this life so that as we lose them, as we become more and more like Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, you've designed things in such a beautiful way to where we actually find our lives. Lord, we thank you. We thank you. Right now, I just want to have two things be prayed for in your heart. Number one, you might be in this category this morning. Maybe for you, you need to pray and ask the Lord to give you spiritual gifts. Just say, God, would you give to me the gifts that you want to give to me? Jesus said, the Father with not, will not withhold the Holy Spirit from those who ask him. The Holy Spirit's inside of you, but perhaps you just don't know about. You haven't discovered the gifts that he's given to you. If you're a believer, he's inside of you. Ask and pray, God, give me the gifts that you want me to have. And then number two, you might be in a different camp where you know your gifts but you've not been using them perhaps for you you need to say to the Lord yes Lord I will use the gifts that you have given to me whether it's small or large whether it's organized or unorganized I'm going to use the gifts that you have given to me Thank you, Lord. And I would pray a third prayer as well. Lord, in this age where everybody, especially in this younger generation, is trying so hard to get fame, Lord, we don't want to use gifts for personal advancement, but Lord, that the name of Jesus would be famous. Please, Lord, we ask that you would use us for your honor, your glory. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.